Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, presented by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. We're going back to Sebring 1989 and a very important moment in Nissan's GTP program. It is the race where they finally made it not only to the checkered flag in a proper endurance race, but also won. It uncorked uh, immense success at upcoming endurance races for them. Obviously, with a string of four championships in a row by Jeff Brabham starting in 1988, this electromotive team, which morphed into NPTI, Nissan Performance Technology International, uh, really just dominated the IMSA scene from 88 to 91. But this 89 victory at Sebring uh, helped them really, really make themselves a complete organization that could win at every track. So I actually caught up with Ari Leyendijk, our friend Jeff Brabham, who we would have loved to have spoken with, actually shot me an email and said he's hiking in Tasmania right now. So Jeff is not able uh, to join in. But we did speak with Ari Leyendijk, who was a part of that winning program. His IndyCar career was in full swing at that point, was drafted in, and just share some cool tales about how he came to be a part of the Nissan program and what this victory meant. Uh, The fact that he maybe doesn't feel like he fully owns that victory, knowing that he was in the other car that conked out a little bit earlier, but really meant to start with 89 Sebring and recollections of it on the 30th anniversary of that win. And as usual with Ari, because he is a great storyteller, we wandered all over the place, spoke about uh, other years of the program, spoke about Jeff Brabham in particular, uh, just such a fascinating character about what makes him special, and you name it. It's our line, Dyke. It's just great stuff. So this isn't super long. I think maybe about 15 minutes or so, but just good, good times with our Dutch friend looking back on a really important victory for him as well. Quick note up front that our new MarshallPruittPodcast.com, don't need the www, just straight up MarshallPruittPodcast.com is up. It is running. It is, I love it. It's my little friend. Now that we have more than 500 episodes, every single one of those is archived and hopefully easy for you to find and enjoy the whole back catalog as we add brand new stuff to it every week. So if you can, check that out, subscribe, Whatever it is that you might want to do or might need to do, it's all facilitated through our MarshallProitPodcast.com site. With all that said, let's get going with our line dyke, 1989 at Sebring, IMSA GTP Glory, brought to you by the Justice Brothers and Cooper Tires. Mr. Leyendijk, we are at the 30th anniversary of Nissan's first big endurance win in IMSA. Yeah. Obviously, they Jeff Brabham in particular cleaned house in 88. 89, though, the 12 hours of Sebring, that was a very important event for Nissan. I seem to recall a Dutch guy who looks a heck of a lot like you, not only being on that team, being quick as a bunny. Tell us about how you came into this program, Mr. IndyCar Driver. Well, in uh, the end of 88, I, uh, I contacted... Uh, the team than the NPTI because I've always loved endurance racing um, my first endurance race was, uh, was with AJ Foyt and Preston Henn and uh, Danny Sullivan at the 24 hours of Daytona in 1986 and I loved the uh, driving at night I loved the endurance part of it where sure. you just got a lot of laps in a lot of miles it was a great way to start the season so I had driven with um, with the team, with the Nissan team in Daytona. Uh, you might remember that race was red flagged for just, we couldn't see anything, it was so foggy. Fog time. Yeah, and uh, we were leading there, but the car did break down. 
And then when we went to Sebring, we had two cars, and I was driving in the second car. But uh, the wheel came off in the chicane, car sat on its left rear and kind of destroyed the back, uh, the left side, and so we had to park it. And then basically I was done, but during the 12-hour race, uh, uh, Jeff and, and Chip were, you know, they were leading and they were quick and they were dominating, but... Uh, I don't remember who it was, but they were getting a little tired. Yeah. They put a lot of laps, and it was very hot, really humid that day. So they asked me to jump in the car, and I kind of relieved them a little bit. So I just, you know, I was very aware of my position within the team. Was I just had to do a job and keep the thing on the track and not do anything stupid. So uh, I didn't really uh, stretch the lead. I uh, lost some of the lead, but I just did what I had to do to to bring it back to the pit so they could continue and finish and win. So I never really considered it one of a, a real victory. Really? But I was part of it. I had the fastest lap in the other car. It's not like I was... Well, but that's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's it's one thing if you're the, the guest driver for the endurance race and your car broke and you helped out the others. But then again, brother, you look at the lap times. You look at the competitive... You know, you qualify P2. You set the fastest lap in the race. Just saying, uh, in terms of contribution, there is no question that, that if they said, hey, you're going to be in the car for six hours, uh, you guys are still winning the race. Yeah, yeah. If I was one of the two guys that were slated to drive that car, then, of course, uh, it would have been a whole different story. So, yeah, I, I just did my job, and, uh, and when they won the race, and that's what en- uh, counted in the end. The, the cool thing is that I, was, uh, I had a good relationship with the team. So in 92, when we went to Sebring, that's where I felt that I was on my game and it was really, you know, we were leading that race quite solidly in 92 until the, the lights went out, the wires were all, uh, because of the bottoming, the wiring was basically torn apart and it took a while to fix those lights. We ended up finishing second behind the, um, the Toyota, the yeah. Dan, Gurney, Dan Gurney's cars. I think it was Fonjo driving it, but I don't remember who the other guys were. But uh, that's when uh, we had a, a really, a really good race with a lot of pace. So that was fun. It was great driving those cars always. Well, that's what I wanted to, to get some thoughts on. You mentioned Fangio. I was going to ask about Brabham first, but let's stay with Fangio. Juan was amazing. Obviously, Jeff won those four consecutive championships. Fangio picked up right after that, continued with a couple more. What was Fangio the second like as a competitor on track was he as fierce as his reputation you know I wasn't around those circles enough but what I, I did get from the whole Fangio era was that it must have been hard to have that last name and live up to it he certainly lived up to it but it was never appreciated and I think it's the same with Jeb Brabham Jeb Brabham was an amazing driver with so much pace with a little bit more luck, he would have won a couple of IndyCar races. But having to live up to your dad, who's been a Formula One world champion, is next to impossible unless you will even look at Damon Hill. Mm. You know, he never gets the respect that his dad had because he was driving that best car, you know. And probably in his day, the old man was driving the best car too. But that's just, you know, it's, it's a matter of perception. Fonjo was an amazing driver, really fast. I don't know about the fearless car part because I never really raced against him. But, uh, yeah, you know, those guys. And see with Chip Robinson, just an easygoing guy who never really looked for 
any spotlight, but was just fast and consistent. You know, those are the kind of guys as a team owner you would want to have. Sure. It's like Jeroen Blakemolen right now. Jeroen could probably do a good job in any series for anybody. He's just, he, need, he, should be, he should be a factory driver for yeah, somebody. And he's kind of under the radar, but he's just solid and fast and just reliable. So it's the same with these guys. They were, were like that. The other thing about Sebring was that I, I really enjoyed the nighttime driving, but Sebring was kind of one of those tracks where you have to attack it. It's, mm. it's like a street course. You know, it's bumpy. It's, it's kind of uncivilized in a way, and that's the cool lighting, part. It doesn't have a lighting like it does these days as well. So from mm. just a pure viewability standpoint, I'm just... Uh, and uh, please tell us about, I have to imagine... A uh, frickin' 1989 Nissan GTP car at the rock and rollin' surface of Sebring in the dark, fighting Jaguars and 962s. I mean, that sounds like you're taking your life in your own hands, man. Well, I was just going to say, it's, it's, it's real... Uh, it's like really cowboying the whole thing around there. I mean, it was... There's nothing... There was nothing... Uh, um, glor... Uh, glorified about it it was really hard work and that car the the nissan was the car that really made me realize that i needed to hit the gym more because (laughs) that thing was amazing it was so hot inside and the steering was so so heavy downforce the downforce but they they did a better job with the second generation of this model where they did something with the steering rack because the first car which they named elvis yep and i tested that thing you could hardly turn the steering wheel. Wow. So they did change something, you know, uh, with the suspension and with the with the rack and everything. Because, but anyhow, it. Every time I came out of that car, I was completely knackered, so to speak. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about some of the competition you would have faced here in this '89 win. I mean, again, we look at some of the names finishing second in a TWR Jag. Bryce Cobb, John Nielsen, after that in a Porsche 962, James Weaver, Dominic Dobson. I mean, you look down the list, and, you know, that's just to name a few, but you look at some of the names. Bob Wallach. the car, I mean, right? Yeah. Beasts. Yeah, no, it's cool. Like, I look at John Nielsen, for instance. John Nielsen, I used to race against John in the Super V days in yeah. Europe and in Formula 3. And he was my competitor. You know, we were... All, racing a lot uh, each other and he had on his helmet he put on his helmet Super John <laughs> and uh, that always just kind of pissed me off I'm like who the hell calls himself Super John it was it would be like me putting Super Ari on my helmet but anyway that always gave me extra motivation Good. to beat John <laughs> I love it but he was super he was a great athlete and he was fast and all of a sudden he just kind of quit racing and I don't know what he's up to Let's talk about the era a little bit, Ari. So, I mean, you're a full-time IndyCar driver. Your career is taking off there. So IMSA is, you know, your after-hours fun, if you want to call it that. But there's also a bit of a romance, I think, for those when they think back to IMSA in the 1980s, even the early 90s, uh, far less regulated than today. Seems like you could do almost anything wild behavior might have been expected in some circles what was it like turning up to the the 12 hours of sebring in 1989 um well with this team you knew that you had a chance to win so that obviously that's a great prospect going into a race um but i haven't looked through the whole list but i know that there's like 
guys like Stuck in there, like Wallach and, and Slasher, and, and just guys that you, you know, knew about. Derek Bell was there, Moretti, just a bunch of guys, and you were racing between sports car racing royalty. Yeah. And it was was cool because IndyCar, with a lot of oval racing, the Europeans, they look down on oval racing. They say, I oh, only have to turn left. And uh, it was kind of fun to come in there and also be competitive with these guys in their game. And that's, that's what... But as far as, you know, I think even now IMSA is hard to regulate the way we regulate IndyCar as far as racing stewards concerned mm. because there's so much going on. Got all these different classes. And back then, it's so funny, I'm a real big Porsche guy. I love Porsches. But then driving the ultra-fast, you know, the P1 cars... Um, and we had all the Porsches in between there. Every time I came up on upon one of those Porsches, I'm like, ah, oh, God, the damn Porsches in my way because <laughs> the slower classes get in your way when you're driving the fastest car on the racetrack. And uh, that was kind of a thought that crossed my mind a lot, that the, the damn Porsche guy is in my way again, you know. But uh, no, no, the, the big challenge with this too was you had really fast cars, and then in the other slower classes, so you had to get around these guys without getting hit. That was my next question, because, yes, GTP, Glory, GTO, those things were dragsters, right? Then you get into, in particular, GTU, where yeah, we don't even know where some of those cars 15, came from. 15, 20 seconds slower a lap, so they were there all the time. And a lot of, call them gentlemen drivers, too, where you say, okay, so it's a right-hand corner, and you are turning in all the way to the right we're going to have a little conversation about apexing uh, after this session I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so between not only some of the cars being wickedly slow some of the driving skill was far below what it was today I'm guessing that must have felt like a video game at some point oh, yeah. with 900 horsepower you had to think for everybody and uh, I remember in 1999 I think I did the 24 hour 98 when we won with Moretti even after 98, I told my wife, I said, I don't think I'll ever do this race again because I literally did not have one clear lap. Oh, you know, it was no fun at all. So, yeah, that's all you had to do. You had to deal with traffic. Traffic management was one of the big things in order to get to the finish. So, in the future, we need to sit down and talk about the Jaguar XJR14, uh, a vehicle that is one of my all-time favorites. But Beautiful car. Let's close on this beautiful car built for midgets and i'm not a midget <laughs> and that was my problem in that car <laughs> let's close on jeff brabham because i know race drivers might not publicly heap a lot of praise on one another but if you see a driver whether it's a competitor or a teammate and you know how talented they are you're going to yeah. offer them your respect tell us about jeff brabham and we know he's a multi-time champion what did you see that made him unique? What skills did he have that you said, ooh, boy? Well, you know, he was... So when I would go to drive with these guys, like at Daytona, for instance, Jeff would do all the work on the setup. So Jeff was in the car most of the time because it was his car, it was his team. And I would just kind of come in. So before the Daytona 500, uh, the Daytona 24-hour, and, and the Sebring race, I might have gotten 10 laps in most, 10 to 15 laps on a weekend before the race. And they trusted me to start the race uh, and everything. But he did all of the work. And what struck me about Jeff at the time was he would set a time that was, like, really quick. 
But then when it came to it and qualifying, when it really, really mattered, he was able to squeeze another few tenths out of it and get the most out of it. And I could never match his pace based on the fact that, you know, I'm not in the car the whole time. But uh, as far as race pace, you know, we were obviously okay on that. But as far as the sheer speed, I never got the opportunity to have a whole weekend in the car and say, okay, I'm going to see how I match up. But Jeff was just super quick and could get the last out of the car. And, he, you know, he, he struck me always as not being physically strong. But amazingly enough, he was physically strong. And always, he never came out of the car completely wasted. And he, he doesn't look like an athlete, but he, he certainly was. Last question on Jeff. What about personality and working style? There's the impression of the cool, laid-back Aussie, but I think there's also that very driven, take-no-BS guy as well. He seemed like someone who could be a driving force within the team, uh, demanding as a team. And demanding doesn't have to be a bad thing, but demanding as a teammate. But what was it like working with him? Because, again, with the times you guys spent together, you guys had a lot of success. I'll tell you how tough he is. So in Sebring in 92, his brother was his partner in the car, and I was on the other car. And I remember who was built up the lead, most likely Jeff. I think Jeff had a 25-second lead over our car. So then when I got in my car and his brother got in their car, I closed the gap of 25 seconds, and I passed him, and I took off. And when my car broke down, Jeff demanded for me to be put in the main car and basically kicking his own brother out. That's how tough Jeff Brabham was. So it was a nice feather in my cap that he thought I was capable of helping them to win the race. But he basically put his brother aside. And that, that hurt his brother a lot. So that's how tough he is. So we're sitting here. You've got your Indy 500 winner's ring on your finger. Let's just close on, I don't know if you've got your, I don't know if you've got a winner's ring from Sebring 89, but how's it feel to know we're 30, 30 year anniversary yeah. of a pretty cool achievement? It's pretty cool, except it's 30 years ago and now I'm feeling really old, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my bad. Ari, right, thank you, brother. All right. And that was our friend, Mr. Dyke. As we mentioned there, we've got more stuff to talk about racing the Jaguar XJR-14 in 1992, and lots of other sports car stuff for him. Uh, although his IndyCar career really is the, the headline item, there's a lot of stuff he did in the sports car space that deserves lots of conversations and lots of fun, lots of stories to be told by the two-time Indy 500 winner. All right, I'm Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast brought to you by the Justice Brothers and Cooper Tires. Thank you for listening.